Her Words is a sub-series from Something Private, featuring lesser-known stories of women who have survived unspeakable pains and triumphed. Women who succeed despite and against all odds. This is their story. At the beginning of September, I chanced upon this headline in our local newspaper about a poet making history as the first female to win a Singapore Literature Prize in all 28 years that it's been held for. And I quote from the article, Her arcane and unapologetic debut collection, Gay Back, took on taboos from menstruation to sexuality. Um, somebody call this sis in for an episode right now. But what was even more interesting to me was that a friend had mentioned that she knew this poet, Marilyn Tan, from her days in school, and that Marilyn had an interesting backstory which led to where she was today. So I picked up the phone, gave Marilyn a call, and decided that her story was one of strength, resilience, courage, a lot of honesty, and coming to terms with herself. Here's Marilyn's story. Hi, uh, I'm Marilyn Tan, and I am 27 this year. I am one of those degenerate poets that you see on the streets. Degenerate is, you know, kind of like one of those things where you go for Chinese New Year and your your family is like, oh, what do you do? And I'm like, I can't say I'm a writer because they're like, huh? You know? Very you, generic. It's can like you, a common yeah, What's that? Exactly. You recently made history mm-hmm. as the first woman in the history of the Singapore Literature Prize, right? To win the Poetry Prize. So mm-hmm. congratulations, first of Thank all. You. Briefly tell me what was the piece of work that you worked on about. Okay, yeah. so it's my debut volume and it's called Gaze Back. So Gaze Back is basically, I like to describe it as the trans-genre lesbo witch grimoire you never knew you needed. So it uses witchcraft and the occult as a vehicle for the emancipation of the individual in a sexist, patriarchal, ableist, homophobic, transphobic, fatphobic, society mm. you know so that was basically my feminist pot shot at the system how do you introduce it again it's the trans genre lesbo which grimoire you never knew you needed trans lesbo trans genre trans- <laughs> oh, you can be a trans lesbo too it's fine many trans <laughs> lesbos love it <laughs> trans genre, genre. Lesbo. Which? Which? Grimoire. Grimoire. Yeah. A grimoire is a collection of spells, basically. I intended it to be sort of a witch compendium of spells Mm -hmm. and also a recipe book. A recipe for insurrection, I think. Okay. Yeah. A lot of things to unpack. One thing that really jumps at me, which is what we're going to cover later, right, is this whole idea of like witchcraft and the connection to feminism. But before that, we had a very interesting conversation on the phone talking about how you got to where you are today. Mm. So I'm going to be very upfront. I want you to share a bit about your journey over the last like 10 years, mm. what you went through and how that kind of like shaped who you are today. Right. Yeah, so up to, up to the point when I was about 17, I kind of coasted through life. You know, I, I, I had an inkling of, you know, being good at writing and things like that. But I wasn't really very interested in uh, social justice or or social issues or anything like that. But that kind of changed when something quite traumatic happened to me in my pre-tertiary years. I was recorded against my will, doing something private, and it was a sexual act. It was a homosexual sexual act. And 
I was in quite a high profile school and uh, I think the people there or, or the schoolmates that I had didn't have any compunction against circulating it. So for, for a while, we were actually trending on Twitter. And it wasn't just me. Somebody else was involved as well because, I mean, when you do something like that, you know, it's very salacious. And the, actually, the local, the local newspapers did report it as such. And I won't say that it's, you know, something that I... I had every right to do. It was definitely a moment of uh, indiscretion. Mm. But um, I think that what struck me about the whole incident was the amount of casual cruelty that Mm. uh, it was treated with. Because, I mean, I was quite young at the time, you know. I was, it was 10 years ago and not even 18 yet. So I remember thinking, oh, surely nothing nothing bad should happen. I would be protected Mm. by those who were there to take care of me, you know, my teachers, my, I don't know, my, (laughs) the authorities in charge or, you know, I mean, definitely my parents uh, stood by me in the whole process and definitely it was a mistake. But I remember putting a faith in the, in the system and in the people who were there to take care of me quite unfoundedly right Mm, mm. like in hindsight Mm. because it really showed me how violent uh, an educational system could be against its own charges Mm. as well as the way in which homophobia and um, violence against young women especially is seen to be acceptable Mm. and and very easily enacted in the guise of keeping people safe mm. or keeping people respectable. After after circulating the thing, right, it actually happened that the school authorities got wind of it. Um, and I was I was under investigation. So it was kind of like a by the school. By the school, yeah. So I was placed under this, I guess it was almost like a police interrogation, honestly. So they take your statement and everything. You have to write out a statement of, of whatever happened and they will corroborate it with the other person. And it was really like I was a criminal and I was mm. I was under investigation. And I'm sure a lot of people will say, yeah, because you did something wrong. You, you did a criminal act, you know. Mm. Um, and I think that what was galling for me was that nobody was punished for videotaping me against my will in doing something private and circulating the video in contacting the Straits Times even, you know? So I'm sure somebody leaked it because they didn't get wind of it until maybe a month later Mm. and I had left already. So to me, it was, it seemed unfair. Perhaps it doesn't, doesn't seem unfair to a lot of people, but it did seem like uh, the burden of sticking to the status quo was, you know, placed solely on my shoulders. And you see this a lot in, you know, other, you see this a lot in other cases as well. You know, people kind of get off scot-free or they get off with a slap on the wrist for violating other people's boundaries in uh, other university cases as well. So it's not surprising, but it is symptomatic of mm. a greater systemic inequality Mm. or or sanctioning of you know undesirable behavior and Mm. i think to a lot of people in this country it's less offensive to record something indecent than it is to 
be doing doing the said or perceived indecent thing. Mm. They try to to say, oh, you know, you have to you have to withdraw out of your own will, or will or will expel you. Those are the two options. So it wasn't. <laughs> it was kind of like. Uh, mm, it's a choice, but it's not really a choice yeah. at the same time. You know, it was a forced choice. Yeah, and I think the reasoning was it looks better if you withdraw of your own accord, mm. so as to speak. Right. Mm. Uh, so I went to Nian Poly after that, and I did psychology with the same girl who was actually involved. <laughs> so uh, we we left, and initially. This was the fucked up part as well. Initially, everybody was saying, oh, you guys should not keep in contact anymore and you, you guys should stay away from each other, you know? Like, don't talk to each other. I guess don't be friends or, or yeah. don't be in each, other's, in each other's lives because it's you guys are obviously bad for each other, right? And um, it wasn't my parents. It wasn't just my parents saying this. It was the school principal. It was I was kind of shocked to that she would be so interested in, you know, like... Your personal life. Exactly. Right? Or, you know, what, what happened to me after that. Yeah. I think that, you know, it was just another way to kind of control the situation. Yeah. It's kind of cruel to say, oh, don't talk about this anymore. Don't, don't contact this person. Don't communicate with them. And it's kind of messed up that, you know, you, you, tell, you tell me not to talk to anybody about this because then... Who's left with the trauma, you know? Yep. It's, yeah, it's just me, right? And, like, who do I deal, like, with the trauma with, right? Is it just, is it just going to be me, like, working through, working through this? I think it could have gone very, very differently because I know of a lot of people who have had that same trauma or that same kind of, oh, you know, everything in school blows up in your face and all of a sudden you're ripped from your friends people that you consider yourself closest to that are not your family and uh you're forced to kind of live away from even even the person that you love right because a lot of people fall in love at that age yep. as well and especially if you are gay or if you're if you're homosexual it's very easy for your your teachers or your parents to say, oh, no, we don't want you talking to this person because obviously they've made you gay or they're enabling your gayness, you know? Mm. You know, one wonders what it would have been like if they were just allowed to live out their business in peace. Mm. I would say this um, as a Singaporean myself, right? You often hear about these kinds of stories of mm. like, they are like scandalous, you mm -hmm. know, before you go into like a certain... For instance, like tertiary education, yeah, pre-tertiary, sure. sorry. Mm. They'll be like, a, oh no, that school is famous for girls who get pregnant. Oh yeah, know? for sure. So many. Exactly. And, you, and, and then you're like, oh my God, I don't want to go to that school because mm. I don't want to be associated with that reputation. Mm -hmm. But I don't know, in hindsight, now when I think about it, the amount of like slut shaming yeah. that is involved in that and like issues are just swept under the rug. It's oh, just yeah. quite like appalling. Like the amount of bullying that is encoded into our system is kind of amazing if you think about it and mm. it's a violence that is more or less invisible to people who are not in those circles or mm. who don't have the, that lived who experience. fall in like the line la, the yeah line, correct right? yeah. yeah who've yeah. never had to think about i think this is this is great because i think that it's exactly what you say it is bullying mm. right i can't imagine what kind of feelings you were left with 
in the aftermath of everything that happened, right? Mm. How did you cope and manage? Um, quite badly at first. And then I think that I was depressed, maybe because of it, but I'm not sure. I remember being very afraid to be out publicly or at least even to my, my schoolmates or my classmates. Because, you know, when, when you kind of cut short that process of coming out to yourself, to your, to your family, to your friends, you kind of stunt it in a way and you, you injure that process so, so much that the individual feels shame, right? They mm-hmm. feel like there's all this shame and uh, violence and trauma associated with my being who I am. And it is because I was who I am that this story got so much traction. Like if I was straight, for example, and I did the same thing, it wouldn't be such a big deal, honestly. It would not. And definitely it wouldn't have made the news. Definitely it wouldn't have been presented in such a steamy and titillating way in in the headlines. We weren't named, but there was very much this sense of like, oh, look at this like extremely kinky thing going on, you know, mm. because lesbians are very often mm. sexualized in popular media and they still are doing it. So for me to internalize that, I think it did a number on the way I interacted with my classmates. Yeah, but I think that um, as I grew older, I grew out of it. And I think that Part of the reason I'm this way is also because I can't shut up. You know, I cannot shut up about my experiences. So there was this point in which one of my classmates actually said in a, in a very secretive way to some of my other classmates. And he was like, oh, I know why, like, I know why Marilyn and the other person, like, came to Polly. And they said, so? <laughs> Just so I was like, oh, thanks, guys. So it's like... It was a much freer environment, I Mm. feel. I think I have that partly to thank as well. And I also got into poetry in my last year in Polytechnic. And that helped a lot, I think, to see other artists saying things that were uncomfortable and saying things that were, I guess, discomforting for other people to hear, right? Mm. And and for themselves to say as well. Mm. So... It, it was like, oh, okay, they can say that. Well, let's see what I can say, you know, to mm. kind of push that envelope a little bit. Mm. And I think I, I just went all the way with that. I pushed way too hard mm. or hard enough. Mm. I want to talk about your relationship with like the system and like authorities mm. as a result mm. of that. From the incident, like how did it develop? Was it like an integral part of shaping who we are today? I I feel like my relationship with authority evolved definitely from that single incident. And I also, not blame, but credit uh, people like Alfia and Cyril Wong and even Ang Yisheng actually for first introduced me to what local literature could be, right? I don't want to say singlet because singlet wasn't really a thing mm. back then. Especially Alfian who will and forever will be my first love, taught me a lot about the voice of dissent and the voice of saying things that criticized Singapore and its governing, I guess, bodies or the the implicit rules or explicit even structures 
that we are all beholden to, right, in this country. And I remember being, you know, 15 years old and, and picking up One Fierce Hour in the school library and being like, holy shit, this, this, this book is in the library and it talks about, like, the Singapore flag being, like, blood and semen and it was just absolutely invigorating for me, right? Um, and I had never imagined that you could talk about art and, and Singapore and life in these terms. And I think I've always kind of carried that with me. Mm. So I think when this, this particular incident happened to me, I'm, it was really a turning point because then I started being very conscious of my place in the world, not just as a very privileged being, right? Somebody who is able-bodied and, and cisgender and I mean, mostly cisgender, and um, feminine presenting and Chinese, mm. but also someone who, you know, lives kind of next to marginalization, adjacent to queerness and, you know, all of, all of the things that come with it. I mean, I'm not going to say that, oh, you know, my life has been so hard because I'm gay. No way, man. I'm too middle class for that. But... Um, <laughs> And I mean, I have very supportive parents, mm. so it's it's way different, you know. And I mean, okay, the supportive parents thing, like you really have to hand it to them because up until that incident, they were also kind of like disapproving of homosexuality. And it actually took them about seven years to go from "Does she want to be a boy?" to um, my mom my mom saying to my dad at dinner, like, "Oh, it's not about the gender; it's about the person." And I just went like. <laughs> okay okay yeah so it was it was kind of an amazing transformation because i don't remember personally having talked to them a lot about it right mm. i don't remember like bro beating them and saying like hey you know you gotta accept gay people no it was mm. it was a very quiet kind of tension that continuously got negotiated and then renegotiated we're taking a short break something private is a podcast produced by vfm Subscribe to us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favourite podcast. To get notified the second a new episode drops every Tuesday. Have a thought or comment that you'd like to share? Drop us a message on Instagram at somethingprivatepod, that's somethingprivatepod, P-O-D, or email us at nicole at somethingprivate.fm. Now back to the episode. We're rounding up that particular incident. How did you rise above it because I, I mean it could very well go both ways right that you be so angry and then like you just be like no fuck it I'm leaving but it seems as if you you did like blossom in, in, in a sense okay, I, not a good I word, didn't but. blossom so much as like fermented and become <laughs> this horrible cryptid that like crawled out of the swamp <laughs> it really fermented. felt like that you know it it really felt like I had to go underground for a, a certain number of years before I like dragged my my bog body out of the ground and was like, hello, I'm here again. <laughs> and this time I don't give a shit. <laughs> you know, um, you know, mm. like the obedience in me kind of died because I was always a very obedient child. And this is why this was partly why my mother was so surprised that this happened because up until then, I had never given anybody any trouble at all, mm -hmm. you know? Say for like, oh, I didn't do my, my homework or I, I went late or like I 
I, I stole a pencil or some shit, you know? It was just very minor. I was always... I was not the best at school, but I was pretty good, you know? I was doing okay. I was, I was fine. I was on track to becoming your stereotypical middle-class, like, Chinese university graduate, right? Yeah. And then this thing happened, and it was like, oh, I guess... The rules don't apply anymore. Mm. I guess the if I play the game, it doesn't, you know, it's not going to reward me anymore. So why play by the rules anymore, right? Um, but I will say also that encountering this, I'm going to say setback. It's not really a setback. It's like a push forward. Yeah. Kind of galvanized me to to do well it was kind of like somebody threatening me and say you know this is your last chance to make it good or otherwise always suffer or always you know just languish in like your failure and I was just like fuck that I'm not gonna do that mm. you know I'm gonna I'm gonna be the best there is <laughs> I'm gonna be the best expelly there, <laughs> there is <laughs> yeah um so I, I did much better in polytechnic and in university than I would have otherwise, I feel, because there was, all, there was always this unconscious threat at the back of my head saying, you're going to fuck up again, you're going to fuck up again. So it was like, oh, I have already put my parents through this much. I should not put them through anything else mm. ever again in their life, mm. right? It was kind of my barter. If I, I bring home good grades, I, I make something of myself academically, then I can go out there and do whatever the hell I want. You know, mm. I, can, I can go out there and be a, be a degenerate poet, basically, right? Not even me. I don't think anybody expected that I would do this poetry thing as far, or push this poetry thing as far as I have. Several years ago, you were in the spotlight for, I guess, something that was not... 100% desirable, but several years later, you are in a spotlight for something that you can be proud of. I thought that was pretty interesting. It's like, that's a bit of an irony Oh yeah, for situation. sure. It's like a full circle kind of thing. Yeah, it's yeah. like, no, exactly, it's like a full circle kind mm. of thing. How does that, like, make you feel? <laughs> it's kind of fucking hilarious. <laughs> I mean, I'm like... Part of me is like, always like, haha, you know, like, hello, I'm back again, but this time we're a completely different thing. And as, as one of my friends said, she was like, oh, is this establishment recognition? And I was like, oh. It is. I mean, yeah, but it's also kind of ironic to think about yes. because I have spent so long saying establishment bad. Yep, yep, exactly. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, and I feel that. Uh, and, and now everybody's going to ask me, oh, so how do you feel about awards and awards shows? And I can't be like, oh, award shows are bullshit because then, then it's, it's very um, dismissive of everybody who's won before yeah. and everybody in the, run, in the running and all of the female poets that I admire and know. Yeah. So, and I think that, honestly, it's not so much about me. As I told SBC, I think it's about being open to narratives and being mm. open to stories that are different from the ones that we've been told so far. And I mean, come on, man. It's the award has been running for 28 years, you know. I'm 27. It's been running for like longer than, than I've been alive. And to be the first woman 
not to mention the first lesbian who's won it. I feel um, this deep sense of like, oh, did you really not like any woman's poetry before mm. this? But also I think that when I was first conceptualizing the book, I said to one of my fellow poets and I said, you know, I want this book to be dangerous. I want this, you know, I want this to be a really, like a weapon, you know? I want it to hurt, you know? I want it to hit where it hurts. Mm. And he looked at me, he was like, oh, how dangerous can a book be? Mm. So I just like took that and I was like, okay, let's go. You're challenging me. Let's go, bitches. Challenge accepted. Okay. Yeah, so like, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I I just run on spite, I feel. Like, I, it's not healthy, but I, I do run on, on spite and, like, um, you know, this insane sense that if if no one's going to do it, then mm. it has to be done. Mm. I want to talk about um this whole idea that you are invested in, which is the whole idea of, like, feminism and, like, mm. witchcraft, right? Mm-hmm. So, I would say that this is a very new era to me, mm. meaning that I don't know anything. Mm. So, explain a bit about that to me because I know that it's a rising or growing kind of like movement in mm. the world of like yeah. feminism and I want to say I, I don't want people listening to think that this is like a very extreme or radical kind of ideal when people are really like uh, uh, against like feminism then we talk about like witchcraft they're like like they turn off the podcast oh for sure for right? sure yeah, yeah, but yeah. give me a bit of like insight as to what that entails yeah so my practice in feminism, my God, I sound like one of those cliché lesbian witches. Yeah, just like, <laughs> oh, fuck men, you know. Um, but it's really not like that at all. I don't fuck men anymore. <laughs> um, so I think that my understanding of witchcraft and feminism kind of developed in parallel with each other, right? So... Uh, I was mentioning that I fell out of love with the church. I don't know if the church fell out of love with me. I suspect it so. But I went on sort of like a journey to to see what truth there was in religion or spirituality or, you know, what have you. In my spiritual studies, I guess, or my occult studies, I have found that, yeah, there's there are certain things that people all over the world believe and they have come to believe it independently of each other which is kind of the big thing for me you know it, it's it's kind of convincing when mm. people who have never been in contact with each other believe almost the same thing mm. archetypally or um, in the way the world works for example and to me it's not that important whether or not it's real. Mm. Like, I'm, I'm a very big fan of empirical evidence, right? So I think it was very helpful for me to think about witchcraft and the occult as a way of accessing feminism that was not sanctioned by the larger part of mainstream society. Mm. Because, you know, I mean, witchcraft has seen a revival in the past decade or so, right? So it's it's coincided with the rise of the Me Too movement and the fact that women all over the world are are taking a stand against patriarchy. And it seems like there really is, you know, I mean, people call it the fourth wave of feminism. And it really is 
an uprising, right, of some kind, um, a paradigm shift of some kind collectively all over the world. And I found that uh, very, very powerful. And um, witchcraft for me kind of took all of these notions and crushed them. And they said, you know, it's okay to be ugly. It's okay to be hairy. It's okay to be, you know, kind of fucked up in a way. And in, in that sense, that is power in itself mm. and coupled with the fact that so often femininity is kind of decried as you know being filthy or or it has to be extremely policed by you know whatever whatever system we live in whether or not it's the state or it's mm. the it's the family or it's a school mm. i mean you see it right um and you know if you are able to access the archetypes of women who are not obedient women, then that kind of power suddenly, you know, is very transformative for you. Like for, mm. for me, um, I always say I have big crone energy, which is like, um, you know, the archetype of the hag, the really <laughs> ugly and misshapen woman living in the woods, like, you know, um, being a cut wife, which is, you know, uh, helping women do abortions and things like that. I, I resonated very strongly with, with her. Mm. And, you know, you know, so often, so much of beauty rhetoric as well, like yep. feminine beauty is about, oh, don't, don't age, you know, you have yep. to like have this anti-aging, like skin whitening, blah, blah, blah. And to kind of subvert then be like, I can't wait to become like the hag that I've always been. Like the hag inside me is coming out now. It's just... you fucking funny. It's like, y'all watch. This is not even my final form. <laughs> I'm living in LV. It's so, it's so like, oh, it's so liberating, yeah. you know, to, to not be afraid of growing old or dying mm. in a sense, right? And that's exactly what I guess, you know, like the old white men of, of whatever beauty company like they founded don't want you to know. They don't want you to know you. You know, like even not shaving, for example, was seen as such a unattractive thing, right? For me, even in my in my adolescence and in my early twenties, it was it was kind of a thing where I I had this conflict inside me and I didn't know whether or not to to shave, to be attractive and you know to, to to not shave because it was more comfortable. And finally, I decided that, you know, like whoever is finding me attractive has to find this attractive as well. So, you know, when people ask me, why don't you shave? I'm like, for who? Mm. You know, for whom do I shave? <laughs> Whomst. Yeah. For whomst. Mm -hmm. I, I do acknowledge that as a skinny Chinese girl, I have access to that that mm. a lot of other people don't have because, you know, other bodies, especially people who are racial minorities, people who are fat, people who are disabled, for example, they don't have the same forms of social and sexual capital that I do. So I, I can still kind of rely on, you know, like the way I generally look to, yep. to kind of bypass that and be like, you know what, I, I don't want to shave because yep. like, it's my personal right. But And they won't be like, oh my God. Like, correct. Yeah. 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 So if other people are already seen as unattractive and not sexually viable as by the state or by society, then of course they're not going to be able to access that empowerment and it's going to be for them yet another form of being, you know, marginalized for having like a... a fat, hairy, brown body, for example, you know, mm -hmm. as we so often insult and decry yep. other people for. So interesting because 
in that scenario then what is the suggested alternative? I mean, how do you tell these people, right, if there's somebody who's listening and identifies mm. as such, how do you tell them that? How do you guide them on the path to empowerment, I guess? You do what you can, right, to feel empowered. If, mm. you know, having a very... If being... If cleaning up well and having plucked eyebrows and shaved armpits and, you know, shaved legs does it for you, it makes you feel beautiful and attractive and powerful, then do it. But mm. know why you are doing it, you know? Mm. Is, is it because, you know, you find power in being that being of attractiveness, mm. you know, is like, don't do not do it for somebody else because mm. somebody else says you should look like that, but you don't feel like that on the inside. It has, to, it has to be something that you do for yourself, whether it is to make your life easier, you know, because um, as Foucault says, you know, technologies of the self, you need to understand why it is you do something that you do in the space in which you live. Mm. And for sure, you can access empowerment and still sort of, look like you are compliant with the norms of whatever, mm. you know, habitus that you are in. Are you comfortable? Yeah. You know, does this make you feel good? Mm. Right? Are you, yeah, like, who are you doing? Are you doing this for yourself? Yeah. You know? And it's very interesting that you say, does this make you feel good? Because mm. I think a lot of women are not asked that question enough mm. or even at all because... Mm. Women's pleasure is mm. not seen as something that is important. Mm. And I think that is also a place that I write from. Mm. I want to I want you to know that my pleasure is important and your pleasure is important. And like if you need to masturbate four times a day, that is also important, you know? It's very important to take one's pleasure seriously, as uh, Eames said. And I think that if you write from a place of pleasure, you also access your power, right? Mm. I do think that you represent a section of the population that falls out of like the norm or the mainstream. If there was like somebody tuning in yeah. and looking for some inspiration yeah. or like, you know, some words of wisdom, what would you say to them? Very often we feel ugly or we feel kind of not accepted by you know our peers or even ourselves right we we wish that we looked like someone else or we wish we you know we were someone else and i feel that that's really a source of power not not the wishing to be someone else but the actually being somebody else and being a messy whole person in all of your ugliness is something that's very valuable to me because mm. it wasn't something that was taught was uh, appealing as, as a child, right? To me, it was something that you had to hide away or you always had to be... I always, I always describe my parents as wanting a very pleasant girl and they, they did, you know, and I just turned out to be the most unpleasant person. <laughs> it really is a kind of freedom to lean into the parts of yourself you hate and rescue them. And if you, you know, you feel unattractive or you feel unloved or you feel like, you know, just generally a hot mess of a person, you know, that's still kind of hot, you know, in, in, in that unabashed way. Mm. Because there is nothing that is more freeing, that is more enjoyable and more pleasurable to watch than somebody taking joy in 
themselves, mm. right? Mm. Embrace the hair. I mean, I, I think it's hot lah, but you know. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you guys for tuning in to another episode of Something Private. If you like our podcast, please subscribe to us on whichever podcasting platform that you're listening to this episode on and share us with your friends, family and loved ones. See you guys next week.